0: And I bet you can buy like big, beautiful farmhouses.
1: Wait, what is
2: that sound? Is that
3: somebody's like showering. Like
2: someone's like peeing.
3: <laughs> no, that that was Alexi. That's Alexi in the kitchen trying to wash off her hands. She's trying to get Greg's food ready. He doesn't eat until oh, late in the morning. How's Greg? Oh, Greg is. Well, he's had multiple accidents this morning. So, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Worth mentioning that Greg is a dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to the 530 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Is the Republican tent big enough to include both representatives, Liz Cheney and Madison Cawthorn? Or might both of them be on the outs come this fall? Cheney is facing one of the toughest primaries in the country after voting to impeach President Trump for the January 6th attack on the Capitol and serving on the House committee to investigate the attack. She has a thoroughly conservative record, but breaks with the party when it comes to supporting Trump's anti-democratic tendencies. Cawthorn, on the other hand, is all in on Trump's vision for the Republican Party, and then some. Last week after Cawthorn suggested his colleagues in Washington host orgies and use cocaine, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he'd lost trust in him, and Republican Senator Tom Tillis from Cawthorn's home state of North Carolina endorsed his primary challenger. These two primaries serve as something of a test of what the Republican Party and its voters will and won't accept. And today we're gonna take a closer look at each race, including the wild card of Democratic and independent support for Liz Cheney. We also have a good or bad use of polling example that will try to get to the bottom of whether Americans support the parental rights in education law in Florida, or what its critics call the don't say gay bill. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed that bill into law last week. Here with me to discuss our senior writer, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is elections analyst, Nathaniel Rekic. Hey, Nathaniel. Morning, Galen. And elections analyst, Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So uh, how is everyone doing this morning? Did we all survive April Fool's intact? Anyone get pranked, confused? Sadly, I did not get pranked. You did not get pranked. People are getting
1: boring. I am pro April Fool's. You want to be
0: pranked to prank me? next year, Nathaniel? Sure,
1: go for it. Ha- take your best <laughs> shot, Amelia. I enjoy it. People should be joking. People shouldn't take things as seriously as they do. You know, all these people who are these grouches on Twitter who are like, April Fool's Day is not fun. They're wrong. Sorry.
0: Well, I'd recommend just spending April Fool's Day off of Twitter. That would be my first like, recommendation for living <laughs> a happy life. <laughs> or like
3: any day.
2: Yeah,
0: that's that's true. What were you saying, Jeff? Sarah Palin pranked you?
3: Sarah Palin uh, seemingly pranked me because I actually genuinely thought when I saw someone tweeting about the fact that she's running for Alaska's house seat that, oh, is this like an April Fool's thing? And so I Googled it and then I saw the New York Times had written a story like that had published 11 minutes before. And I was like, oh, no, this is a real thing. (laughs) This (laughs) This isn't April Fool's. (laughs) So it's not a prank. It's not a prank. It was a prank. It seemed prank-ish, but it was indeed not a prank. And I saw that
2: Trump has endorsed her. I was going to say, if that was a prank, it was an elaborate prank that the former president was in on. I got pranked because only very briefly, Tony, who everyone knows as being in charge of the control room for this podcast— Uh, shared on Slack that you were going to be able to see the northern lights from New York City on April 1st, which I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Interesting. Let me read. But then in the article, it said that they were going to be dimming like One World Trade Center, the Chrysler Building, and the Empire State (laughs) Building to reduce the light pollution so that people could see. And then as soon as they suggested that dimming three skyscrapers in New York City would actually affect the level of light pollution, I was like, oh, shit, right. It's April 1st. So, Tony, you almost got me. Anyway, let's get into our good or bad use of polling examples. So the parental rights in education law bans classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade and limits it to what is developmentally appropriate after that, allowing parents to sue if violated. So do Americans support this controversial law? Well, in recent weeks, different pollsters have found dramatically different results based on how they asked respondents about it. An ABC News poll found only 37% support the law nationally, and a University of North Florida poll found only 40% of Floridians approved of the law. On the flip side, however, two national polls, one from Politico and one from Public Opinion Strategies, found majority support for the law with 61% support in the public opinion strategies poll. Each pollster used a different approach, which we can dig into, but the question here is, which is the better use of polling? Which gives us more insight into what Americans think about this law? Or is each poll simply giving us different information? Let's start with you, Nathaniel. Do you think that one of these polls is better designed for understanding public opinion? No,
1: not particularly. I think you put it very well, Galen. I think each of these polls is telling us something different, and that is all valuable information, and we should kind of take all of that into account. Uh, it's kind of no different from other things we've discussed on this podcast, such as you know the Build Back Better bill and the best way to ask about the billion zillion things in that bill versus just saying Build Back Better or the support for a no-fly zone over Ukraine and you know people not knowing maybe what that entails. Different question wordings will reveal different things, and that's good.
2: Okay, then what do we know about the different pieces of that law and its popularity based on that idea?
1: Yeah, so it seems like when the questions mention or emphasize the age-appropriate nature of the, the bill, they know that it is targeted at banning you know this instruction for younger students, I think grade three and below. And then even above that, you know, kind of making it quote unquote age appropriate, which I think is actually the language that's in the bill itself, which is fairly vague. Yeah. You know, that I think people do seem to be more on board with. So for example, in the the political morning consult poll, they asked specifically about those portions of the bill and they had, I think, slight majority support. So it was 50% for banning the teaching of sexual orientation from kindergarten through third grade. And it was 52% for limiting the lessons for third grade and older to, quote-unquote, age-appropriate discussions. Um, At the same time, the part that seems less popular is the ability for um, parents to sue school districts over alleged violations of this. So that was not popular in the morning council poll. It only had I'm doing the math here, 41% support. Um, And then also the University of North Florida poll, which mentioned some things that the bill would do, um, but ended on that legal liability thing, found only 40% support.
2: Amelia and Jeff, do you agree here that each poll is just giving us different information and it doesn't come down to methodology or that some of the polls might be off or wrong?
0: I think the real challenge here is that it is not actually clear what this bill will do. And I don't know how you communicate that effectively in a poll question, because the issue is that there are all these terms in the language that are incredibly subjective. Nathaniel, you mentioned age appropriate. like parents fight about whether everything is age appropriate for children. So like the idea that we can read the words age appropriate and everyone knows what that means. Obviously, that's not true. And it's not clear what counts as instruction, what counts as a lesson. The word discussion was used in other places. So like, is it just, for example, talking about the fact that someone has gay parents? Like, does that... Count as classroom discussion, or is this sort of specifically a lesson with like a curriculum about sexual orientation and gender identity? All of that is completely unclear in this. And so it really, I think, makes it hard to present this clearly to people. And it also makes it hard for people to react. And so The poll I liked least was the one that just read part of the bill to people because the wording of the bill is very confusing. And I think just having that read to you or seeing that quickly on a poll, like people are not really going to absorb what that means. You know, like I read it several times before I like figured out sort of like, oh, this is this is what all these parts of the sentence mean. But other than that, I just think this is like a really hard situation to be in if you're a pollster.
3: I think my general thought is that it's pretty clear that bringing in terms like age appropriate, raise support for the legislation, whereas just sort of a simple like one sentence description talking about prohibiting discussions led to greater opposition. And in the poll that was specifically of Florida voters or adults, I, I forget if it was adults or voters, that one mentions the fact that the bill would open the door for parents to sue. And that isn't very popular. And we saw at the Politico Morning Consult poll that that particular part of the legislation wasn't popular. So for them to include that in the actual language of the, of the sort of overall test of people's support or opposition, it's not a shock that it, it didn't poll as well because you're specifically sort of queuing people with that information. So I think it's just a really interesting example of how finding the truth is really challenging and how much wording can affect polling responses. This is the part that was sort of confusing to me and makes it
2: difficult to get to the bottom. So we know across a couple polls that mentioning the legal liability aspect of it isn't popular. So people generally don't like the idea of parents just suing school districts over curricula. However, the two polls that had the most divergent results never mentioned anything about the lawsuits. So this is an ABC Ipsos poll that found the least support. You know, they're asking about several different topics to national adults. On another topic, would you support or oppose legislation that would prohibit classroom lessons about sexual orientation or gender identity in elementary school? Support, 37%. Oppose, 62%. So it seems pretty overwhelming when you look at it that way. But the public opinion strategies poll that you mentioned, Amelia, that lists part of the law, they read part of law and say, do you support or oppose? And this is what they read. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through third grade or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. There, support 61 percent, oppose 26 percent. So it's almost like even if you take the lawsuit aspect out of this you get basically mirror image results if you synthesize it into one sentence versus if you actually give respondents the text of the law. I mean, it sounds, Amelia, like you don't think that we should just give people the text of the law. But I mean, to me, it's not that confusing. Like This seems like relatively straightforward information, but people just respond to it so differently. I mean, are there any theories for why? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think in that case, the public opinion strategies poll that quoted the bill, you know, had, again, that language about, quote unquote, age appropriate, which I think makes a big difference. It also ended with in accordance with state standards, which I feel like is going to be like, well, you know, if the state thing says it's okay, you know, and especially this was a national poll. And actually, I'm not sure. Did they specify if they were in support of a Florida law that said this or a law in their state? Because that would make a difference. I would imagine that parents in Massachusetts might be a lot more accepting of state standards set by their liberal legislature, for example. So I still think there's plenty of kind of reason there could be a divergence. That said, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's a big gap and it's interesting to
0: suss out. I thought the more interesting tension between the polls in here was actually between the morning consult poll and the ABC Ipsos poll, because I think for the reasons that you were mentioning, Nathaniel, and also just the fact that the bill language, like, I do think it's hard to parse. I think if you hear the language of the bill, you could read that or hear that and not understand that this is just a complete ban on classroom instruction about these topics in K through third grade, which may make a difference for people. But the morning consult poll asked a more simple question, a more straightforward question, didn't quote the bill text. And so it says, it has sort of like a a lengthy preamble. And then it says, to what extent do you support or oppose the following items in the bill, banning the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten through third grade? So that's pretty comparable, I think, in terms of clarity and getting mm-hmm. to the point um, to the ABC News Ipsos poll. And for that, it was 50 percent support, 34 percent opposition. And then some people said they didn't know 15 percent, it looks like, or had no opinion. And so that is pretty different. And I think there the preamble to the morning consult poll is what's making the difference, because they introduced the bill, and then they said some say that limiting these discussions will protect children from inappropriate classroom topics, while others say it will block important conversations about LGBTQ issues. So that sort of presented what the for and against is in the universe of this poll question, which arguably is not what would happen but i think that cued people to the politics of the issue by saying that it would block important conversations about lgbtq issues and also protect children from inappropriate classroom topics there's like a little sort of like partisan like in the question and i think that's why what was that that noise uh it was uh yeah partisan siren that's a thing right Um. I need to make a
2: button that just has Amelia saying that was a little partisan (laughs) and I can just push the button during the podcast
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, then that would just be, I mean, me singing my little siren for the whole podcast, Gail, and no one wants that. Yeah. But I think that is the difference, I think, between the results. And it's not to say that like, cause like this is super politicized. So I don't know that that's inaccurate. Like the way that people are talking about it is hyper, hyper partisan, mm-hmm. but I think that explains why you get a different result.
1: Yeah. And I think to that point too, even more simply the morning consult poll said that this is a real bill in Florida that is referred to as the don't say gay bill, which might remind people, oh, I heard something about that. And like, I know which partisan side of the camp I'm on on that. Whereas the ABC Ipsos poll presented it basically as a hypothetical.
2: So do you think it's fair to say from all of this information that this law is popular?
1: I think the one thing that's clear is that it is divisive. And maybe some of these, you know, the ones that show it with either 30 percent Margin in either way, you could argue that's not divisive. That's a pretty strong majority. But like the average of all these, which of course is you know I think our best way of determining what you know the quote unquote real feelings are, to the extent that there are, people have real feelings, because this is such an amorphous issue, it seems like you know the country is divided. There is a significant side on one side and a significant number on the other side.
2: Okay. So also, harkening back to our podcast from last Thursday, which I know you guys weren't a part of, but we talked about wedge issues. And so I'm thinking about this issue and the possibility that Americans just may have somewhat conflicting views. We know from other polling that even majorities of Republicans now support same-sex marriage. And there was on the issue of, for example, whether transgender students can use the bathroom of their preferred gender, et cetera, there was a pretty big backlash to things like that. So we know that in general, Americans are supportive of gay people and pretty supportive of trans people in certain circumstances as well. We also know that when you poll parents about education, they say they want more control. And it seems natural that parents would want to say, "Okay, only age appropriate things for my child in elementary school. So is it possible that Americans may agree in large part on two things that are somewhat conflicting at times or that this law tries to put in conflict with each other? But then when you give a certain partisan framing one way or another, you are able to sort of drive a wedge in one direction or another. When you make it about, okay, you're being bigoted towards gay people, then you get a majority on your side. Or when you say you're proving parents from ensuring that their children are learning age-appropriate material, then you get a significant majority on your side. So is it that Americans are divided in two or is it that it's complicated? (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: I think it's that it's complicated and it goes to show the value in framing an issue the way that is beneficial to your side. I don't mean to create the impression that there actually is a set opinion out there that we just haven't uncovered yet. I think that it is malleable and dependent on how people are are asked to think about it.
0: There's an aspect of the parental rights framing that I think is pretty fascinating and sort of genius from a framing perspective, but also explains why this lawsuit component is so unpopular, which is that when parents are asked, do you want more control over your children's education? Or, you know, do you want to make sure that your children are being taught age-appropriate content? They're thinking about that for themselves, when in reality, parental rights legislation, especially something like this, is going to delegate decisions about that to the loudest minority of parents who have a view that is probably not the mainstream opinion but they're going to be the ones who are filing complaints and making their voices heard in the school district and they're the ones who are going to you know be potentially filing lawsuits and so I think when people Think about it more from that perspective, which I think the lawsuit component does, like, I think that does sort of make mm. them think like, oh, who would actually be deciding? And then they realize, oh, it's actually maybe it's not actually me deciding what I think is right for my kid it's some other random parent in my kid's school, and maybe I don't agree with that person. So I think there's a tension, too, because everyone says, oh, yes, parents should be able to decide when they want sensitive topics introduced to their children, and, you know, they want age appropriate content. But then again, you know, anyone who's been to like a PTA meeting, like, these are not (laughs) issues that like parents get up together, and they say, Oh, yes, we agree. And I think once people are sort of prompted to think about it, you know, that take that one extra step, Mm -hmm. then it becomes less sort of clearly a thing that people are just like, Oh, sure, that sounds good.
2: That's interesting. So what do, we give the, what do we give this use of polling? What rating do we give it? Complicated use of polling?
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think all of these are good uses of polling because they give us information.
2: Oh, okay. Well then,
0: all right, That's good. so diplomatic of you, Nathaniel. Yeah, good on
1: all these pollsters. Keep asking about it, pollsters. I know, I'm just, great inflation. You You get a good use of polling. You get a good use of polling. You get a good use of polling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right, let's leave things there and discuss Representative Liz Cheney's
0: primary. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
4: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
2: Liz Cheney is facing perhaps the toughest primary election in the country. She's been a vocal critic of Trump, and much of the GOP has ostracized her. She was booted from House leadership last year and censured by both the Wyoming and National Republican parties. Her primary challenger, Harriet Hageman, has been endorsed by President Trump. One potential saving grace for Cheney, which has gotten a lot of attention in the media, is Wyoming's same-day registration rule in the primary, meaning that Democrats and unaffiliated voters could choose to vote in the Republican primary come time in August. Some Republicans in Wyoming sought to prevent that possibility by introducing a bill to end same-day registration. It was endorsed by Trump, but it was not ultimately passed. So let's talk about the extent to which Democrats and unaffiliated voters could save Cheney in Wyoming and where she falls within today's GOP. So Jeff, you looked at past elections to try to determine how many crossover votes there might be out there. And in fact, the article that you wrote as a result is uh, on the 538 website today, so folks should go check it out. But for our purposes here, what did you find? How many crossover voters are there out
3: in the world? No, not in the world, in Wyoming. It's difficult without a voter file to pin down the exact number, but based on the overall voter registration data, I looked back, particularly at the 2018 primary in Wyoming, uh, because there was a really competitive governor's race, really competitive Republican primary for governor, I should say, with multiple candidates, including Harriet Hageman, who finished third in that primary and is now running against Cheney. And in that race, you saw about 1,800 fewer Democratic registrants after the primary, about 2,700 fewer people who were registered as like an independent or a libertarian or what have you, and about 8,000 more Republicans between the primary and the next time they published the numbers, which was like a week and a half later. So we could take it to mean that most of that switching was based on what happened on primary day when people either registered, took advantage of same-day registration, or they took advantage of crossover voting and switched their party registration at the polls. So at the end of the day, you're talking about maybe there were four or 5,000 people who actually switched their party registration. And at the end of the day, there were about 8,000 new Republican voters. So some of that was from new people registering. Some of that was from people switching in terms of voter registration. So it's not a lot of people in the sense that you had a little over 117,000 people vote in the Republican primary in 2018. So not a huge percentage.
2: Let's tease that out a little bit. So if we accept that the world of crossover voters is 8,000 people in the state of Wyoming, which... I'm not sure I necessarily accept, but we can get into that. How close would the election have to be for crossover voters to make the difference for Cheney?
3: Well, I mean, I played that out a little bit in the article. It's it's essentially a question of Cheney, I think, has to keep it in a sort of a single digit margin among sort of tried and true Republican registered voters in order to imagine a scenario where you could get enough crossover voting that would then swing the election to her. And that's assuming, and I think this is also an assumption that is not, you know, got to be careful with it, that all those crossover voters would vote for her. And with new registrants coming in as well, I think that also gets complicated because my suspicion is that newly registered Republican voters at the polls are not necessarily going to be favorably predisposed toward Liz Cheney. So that's also maybe a place where she might lose ground. Uh, So, I think it just has to be a, a pretty tight race for this to matter at all.
2: All right. So, and here I'm curious what Amelia and Nathaniel, you also think. There's never been an election probably like this in Wyoming, in which there is a very high profile incumbent. You know, obviously the Cheney family looms large in Wyoming and sort of the country on the whole as well. Cheney has more than $7 million in the bank, some crossover appeal. Does historical data help us all that much? When we're trying to understand such a unique election, could it be the case that turnout levels are more similar to a general election and for crossover voters or something like that?
1: It's possible. I think that it's very hard for a primary to have the general election level of turnout. But yes, I think everything you're saying is correct, Galen. You know, this is in many ways unprecedented. It's going to be a very high profile election. There's going to be a lot of advertising telling people to go out to the polls. In a sense, I hesitate to make this comparison, but you could compare it to like the Georgia runoffs in early 2021, where we had this robust pattern of turnout declining in runoffs and Republicans tending to do better in the runoffs than they had done in the general election. But um, that was broken, of course, Democrats won those races um, because it was a battle for control of the chamber and that was unprecedented. The stakes aren't as high in this election, but you could see something like that happening, but I still think that you kind of have to use as your your priors to use a very 530-80 term this fact that primary turnout tends to be low. Crossover voters tend not to make a difference in a close election. Maybe we should be aware of the possibility, but you know, more so than normal considering the circumstances, but but my kind of default position is the same as Jeff's.
0: Jeff and Nathaniel, you are the people who I always go to with my election history questions. Can you think of an election where crossover voters have made a difference? Like, is this just like a thing that people talk about? Or is there actually precedent for this having happened?
2: Lisa Murkowski is right in campaign in Alaska.
3: Well, I think that's also just a different situation. Is that crossover? Well, Not it's a, a general. Also, it's also a general election. So, like primaries. Yeah. The first example that comes to my mind is actually a primary runoff in 2014. Thad Cochran. Uh, Thad Cochran and Chris Boom. McDaniel.
0: Oh my god. Um, you two yeah, are my
3: favorite. Same, we're on the same page, the same brain right here. <laughs> so, in that race, and that was a state that has runoff rules, Mississippi. So, you had to get a majority in the primary to win the nomination. Wyoming doesn't have that, although there was a push to potentially pass something like that in the aftermath of of Cheney, sort of getting pushback from the GOP. But basically what happened is that Thad Cochran trailed very narrowly in the primary, but Chris McDaniel fell just short of a majority. And so it went to a runoff. And then in the runoff, Cochran won by about a point. And there was actually higher turnout in the primary runoff, which was unusual than in the first round of the primary. And there was a concerted effort by Cochran and his team to find voters, particularly in the African-American community, to turn out and vote for Cochran. And there was all sorts of complications with that, though, because of rules about having voted in the Democratic primary and then not being able to vote in the Republican primary runoff. But nonetheless, given how tight a margin it was, I think there was at least some consideration that turning out some voters who maybe didn't vote in the initial primary saved Cochrane And
2: Cochrane was seen as the preferred candidate for Democrats or independents or what have
3: you. Oh, yeah, because Cochrane was sort of a, an old style appropriator. Uh, who'd been in Congress forever, whereas Chris McDaniel was very much like very anti-establishment Tea Party, uh, had said, I think, positive things about the Confederacy in the past, which was part of, I think, what Cochran's team was trying to use to particularly win over some black voters. So yes, yeah, that was sort of how that played out.
1: Yeah. So I think the evidence is, is fairly strong that black voters did make a difference well, a difference, maybe not worthy the decisive factor, but made a difference for Cochran in that race. So at the time, Nate Cohn and Derek Willis at The New York Times wrote an analysis of this. They found that turnout greatly increased in predominantly black precincts and that about half of Cochrane's margin was accounted for by these kind of heavily Democratic and black precincts. But I will point out Cochrane's winning margin in that race was 7,667 votes. And that's a very small margin. And this is in a state four times as big. Big as Wyoming, or maybe three times. Um, I was going based on the how many House seats they have, but I know Wyoming has more people than that. But anyway, that was a tangent.
2: Um, Don't worry, we believe you can do math. <laughs>
1: <them>. <laughs> Thanks, Caitlin. This was a very close race, and that's the circumstance where the black vote seemed to make a difference. So yeah, do the math for Wyoming.
2: So what you all are telling me is that crossover voters could make a difference, but we can argue what exactly the margin would have to be, but that Cheney has to keep it pretty close with Hageman. It's not going to be like, oh, it would have been Hageman's beating Cheney by 20 points, but Democrats and unaffiliated voters won it for Cheney. So given that, I'm curious, and this brings it to the point that we started on in this podcast, what is Cheney standing like within the Republican Party in Wyoming? I mean, do we have polling on that? Does her cash advantage seem to be making any difference? What can we say about where she stands today?
3: Well, we don't really have much in the way of, of recent polling of the race. Um, there was a poll in December that put her at about 20% and Hague at about 40%. So that's clearly not good. And then there's there was some even older polling that found her, like, her favorability among likely Republican primary voters was in the 20s. And her unfavorable number was at like 70%. Um, and there was another poll from even earlier on. The The nature of the race has changed a bit because of candidates sort of coming in and dropping out. But there was another poll that even earlier on that had her in the 20s. So I, I think the point is that she's not in a very good position uh, in terms of her support among Republican primary voters or the died in the wool Republicans that will make up most of the Republican primary electorate. So with that in mind, this is coming back to sort of what was the main idea behind my piece, which was all this talk about crossover voters. They don't matter at all if Cheney can't win over a good chunk of the Republican base in Wyoming. And it seems like at the moment, she's really struggling on that front. We don't have a lot of polling data to go off, but when you have the state party essentially excommunicating her, county committees all over the state formally censuring her, None of that seems to be very good uh, when you're trying to figure out how do you win enough support to be close enough where, sure, maybe there are more Democrats than usual who switch. But we're also talking about a state where 70 percent of registered voters are Republican in Wyoming and only about 16, 17 percent are Democrats. So it's like you got to do a lot better with the 70 percent there uh, to have any chance for that smaller number to matter at all.
0: But the election isn't for a while, right? It's what, three, four months away? Yeah, it's in August. Liz Cheney seems to have more money than God. So, is there a possibility that she uses that money in some way that is very effective that counterbalances this pretty serious disadvantage she seems to have at least last year when this polling came through? I mean, the the financial imbalance between the two candidates is is really 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 big. So, can her money save her?
2: And maybe to that point as well, Amelia if she does try to use that money to save her, what is the message? Like, when you're an anti-Trump Republican, is there anything you can say that you can then spend all of that money putting on television and radio ads and Facebook and YouTube, whatever, that will win people over to your side?
1: Well, to Amelia's question, I think the answer is definitely yes. I think there's plenty of time for Cheney to turn this around. As you mentioned, so she has almost $5 million in the bank right now versus just 381000 for Hageman especially in primaries, campaigns still matter. Money spending does matter. And to Galen's question, I think that she can really emphasize her conservative credentials, of which she has plenty that are kind of in the non-Trump division. And then, you know, I think that she can also just attack Higeman and kind of bring her favorables down and make it a choice of two evils type of situation. Mm. I also think, well, I'm stealing this idea from Jeffrey, but there are probably a lot of kind of outside groups who can come in and maybe try to do sneaky things in the race, like maybe try to elevate one of the other pro-Trump alternatives in the race and siphon those votes away from Hageman and toward like Anthony Bouchard, for example, who's he's a state senator who's also running, who hasn't gotten traction because he's he's got some. Baggage. but uh, Baggage, sorry, baggage <laughs> putting is putting it mildly, mildly he, at this uh, point. Yeah, he yeah. Uh, impregnated a 14-year-old girl when he was 18 years old. Um, so I definitely think that there's a room for money to make a difference in this race, given the financial disparity, given the fact that Hageman hasn't proven herself a particularly capable candidate in the past, finishing third in the 2018 gubernatorial primary. So this is a situation where if this were like a, a general election and we were looking at, you know, modeling it, you would say, you know, the fundamentals favor Cheney, but Hageman starts out with the polling advantage, and since we're still four months out from the race, you would give the fundamentals a fair amount of weight. Obviously, if it becomes August 1st and Hageman still has the polling lead, then you would probably have to say that Cheney's the underdog at that point.
2: Sort of broadening this out to lessons we can learn about the Republican Party, is it fair to characterize this as a referendum on Trump in Wyoming? And obviously, Wyoming is not the nation, and it's not the Republican Party you know from coast to coast. But is that kind of the only issue when we're looking at this early polling is like, do you support Trump or not? And if you support Trump, you're voting for Hageman. And if you don't, you're supporting you're voting for Cheney. Or like not support, but like, do you as a Republican like and want more of Trump?
3: I think it is partly that. I also think it is, and I'm basing this in part off of, I was just watching uh, Hageman's intro video earlier today. And they talk about like sort of a commitment to the party And perhaps that's also a commitment to Trump as having been leader of the party at at sort of the point when Cheney got into trouble with her base by voting to impeach Trump um, and then continuing to oppose him afterward and being very loud in that opposition, which I think also rubbed many of her colleagues in the House the wrong way, who were sort of like, let's kind of move past January 6th as best we can. But for voters in Wyoming, I think it's partly a pitch about Trump because Trump is still very popular within the Republican Party. But I think it's also a pitch about Cheney sort of not being true to the Republican Party by not being committed to Trump. And also the fact that at the end of the day, most of Wyoming voters probably weren't in favor of impeaching him. And so she sort of went against her voters. And that can get you in trouble, um, especially when it's so clearly lopsided in opposition to what she did. So it's partly a referendum on Trump, but there's like other things sort of rolled into that that I think are worth noting. You know, it's not only that.
2: I think there's going to be a number of primary elections. This, of course, is the marquee one where they have a large component of being a referendum on Trump. And certainly the press will frame them as being a referendum on Trump. If we sort of look past the elections and just go straight to the data, how popular is Trump still within the Republican Party today?
1: He is very popular, you know, as you would imagine with a polarized environment. Um, his favorability rating, I think, is consistently 80, 90 percent among Republicans. There is perhaps a more soft underbelly there in that, like, when you ask who would you vote for in the 2024 primary, he doesn't he hit 80 percent. You know, there was one poll that put him at 59 percent. That was Harris caps. There was another that put him at 43 percent, although that was still well ahead of, of anyone else. That's a of Yahoo News poll that was Trump at 43 percent, followed by DeSantis at 22. So, you know, there's a little space there to be like, well, like, I like Trump, but I'm not necessarily like wedded to him as the future of the party. And maybe that's an area where those voters might be persuadable. But no, overall, I think the takeaway is Trump is extremely popular. It's just a question of how devoted, perhaps that's the right word, devoted Republican voters are to him.
0: I mean, the other thing that I think is interesting about what's happening in Wyoming is You know, in a sense, it's like it's also a test of how nationalized people's thinking about politics has become, Hmm. because I don't think, you know, from like a perspective of who is going to be the better representative for the people of Wyoming's interests in Congress. I think there's probably not a lot of daylight between Cheney and Hageman and Cheney has a record of having been in Congress, and she's conservative on the things that Wyoming Republicans care about. And I think she's really trying to emphasize that. Right, like,
2: unless it comes to impeaching Trump again. Right,
0: right. And she's tried to emphasize, you know, like, these are all the things that I've done for the people of Wyoming. And so if they are really making a decision based on whether she should have impeached Trump or who has Trump's support, then that's, like, a pretty striking place for us to be politically because people aren't necessarily thinking who is going to bring jobs back to Wyoming or who is going to deal with like land use in ways that I care about. And so I think that'll be something that's interesting to me to see if Liz Cheney, if she is sort of leaning into this message of like, look, I've actually done a lot of things for Wyoming that have been good and people have liked if that resonates with people at all in this political climate.
3: Yeah, I think the challenge for Cheney is that the Republican Party at this point is just almost uniformly pro-Trump. It's different shades of pro-Trump. So you can be sort of, "Uh, Trump's good, he's fine, or you can be very, very Trumpy. But the problem for Cheney is that she occupies a position where she is sort of in that small camp of vocally anti-Trump, remains critical, openly critical of Trump and not just in a like, well, he kind of screwed up on this thing. But at the end of the day, you know, his policies were good. Like she's been just very vocally critical of Trump. I mean, she called him like a threat to democracy. Right, like he's a danger to the country. Yeah. He cannot be allowed to yeah. reside in the White House right. again. She regretted
0: yeah. voting for him.
3: I was just living, looking at civics polling on this uh, just because they've tracked his favorability over over the years. And, you know, his favorability among Republicans was 83% the last time they, they updated. So like, among Republicans and you're vocally anti-Trump. It's just, you could see why this is a very difficult position Mm -hmm. to be in. Yeah. Now, another interesting thing about
1: what you said, Amelia, is the nationalization of the race. And I feel like this is a Case where it will be more nationalized than other primaries that are like this because Cheney actually doesn't have those strong ties to Wyoming and quote unquote delivering for Wyoming, right? So she primaried former Senator Mike Enzi initially to try to get into the Senate, and that went very badly. She was, she was seen as like, well, this is just the daughter of a former vice president who wants a seat in Congress, and she's just moving in here to take it. And she's relatively new in the House, and you think about some of these other pro impeachment republicans like someone like Fred Upton in Michigan who's been around forever has strong ties to the region that he represents and and bringing home bacon and that kind of thing and for someone like him you could see it becoming you know about his personality and you know what he's done for the district and I think it is harder for Cheney to make that argument which is why to Galen's earlier question I feel like her strategy is going to be maybe making the race about other national conservative wedge issues that aren't Trump or dragging down Hageman rather than pointing to, I built this bridge in Cheyenne or whatever.
0: That's really interesting, Nathaniel. So you think like she doesn't have credibility to be making those claims in Wyoming?
1: Not really. I don't know. What do you think, Jeffrey?
3: Well, I mean, I think maybe she has some credibility, but perhaps she does not have as much as someone who has been there for a long time or you know, had been like a state rep or a state senator for a few years or mayor of some notable city or something and then got into the House. Like, she doesn't quite have that normal relationship, to your point, about jumping into the Senate race in 2014, right? And then deciding, oh, this isn't going well, and then dropping out and then coming back and winning the House seat in 2016. It just doesn't come off as well as perhaps some other reps would.
2: And I think in another world, seven years ago, you would think that the Cheney name would have a lot more cachet in Wyoming. And to give you an example of how Trump has been approaching it, he released a Photoshopped photo of Cheney with Bush's face and her hair ahead of a fundraiser between Bush and Cheney. Basically saying that legacy doesn't have a lot of value in Trump's Republican Party. And you know, obviously in 2016, he ran against a lot of that legacy. So I guess that's another area where the sort of Wyoming connection might be fraying a bit. Let's move on and wrap up this show talking about someone who seems to have fallen out of favor with the Republican Party by perhaps you could say going too far in the opposite direction from Liz Cheney, and that is North Carolina Representative Madison Cawthorn. So the straw that appears to have broken the camel's back has to do with his comments on a topic that actually we talked about last week on this podcast, He was on the podcast Warrior Poet Society, and the host asked him how close the TV show House of Cards is to the reality of Washington. This is actually, we literally debated this last week. But anyway, our conversation went very differently from his conversation. Here is how his answer to that question went.
4: I heard a former president that we had in the 90s was asked the question about this. And he gave an answer that I thought was so true, and he said, the only thing that's not accurate in that show is that you could never get a piece of legislation about uh, about education passed that quickly. Yes. And everything else is good? Aside from that, I mean, the sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington with the average age of probably 60 or 70, and I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, you know, I've looked up to through my life, always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get together at one of our homes. You should come. And I'm like, what, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. Uh, and then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. And it's like, wow, this is, this is wild.
2: As you can see, our conversation did not go quite like that. After this clip came out, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he lost faith in the congressman and retiring North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis, as I mentioned, endorsed Cawthorn's opponent. Cawthorn has said lots of very out there things. Somewhat recently, he called the president of Ukraine a thug. And then when it comes to behavior, he's charged currently with a misdemeanor for driving with a revoked license. He's been accused of sexual harassment by former classmates. Why is this the thing that got his party to turn on him? At least part of his party to turn on him.
0: Because he's saying they're going to (laughs) Orchies.
2: Okay, maybe that was a stupid question.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I feel like all those other things, you know, you can people can just be like, oh, you know, whatever. Madison's crazy. He does what he wants. But like this is the thing that like if someone hears about this on Fox News and then they go to a town hall where their Republican politician is talking and they're going to be like, hey, can you say a little more about these orgies? So I think it's like this. These comments reflect very badly on Republicans in a way that you know, the other stuff, like maybe it just makes him look bad, but also not necessarily in a way that people care about.
2: Is he bashing the establishment? Obviously, we don't know who he's talking about. But is this meant to say that, oh, the establishment in Washington is like this? And I'm not part of that establishment. And sort of my coterie of other people who have my style of politics aren't this, but there are like establishment Republicans doing cocaine and inviting me to orgies. Is that the underlying
3: message here? I mean, I don't know, Galen. I think it's it's possible that you're you're right. I just like what is he talking about? Like, I honestly just have no. It's because if you're like yeah, my friends, if question.
2: I were to come on the podcast and be like, my friends invited me to an orgy and were like doing cocaine in front of me, that would implicate me too. Unless I was like, oh, there's like this group of people that I know that I don't like, but also kind of associate with. I guess I'm confused, but
3: also, won't. Galen, I have <laughs> yeah, to go no to the man. party because that's where everybody else is. You know. <laughs> I just have to go, and then stuff happens there, and I watch it, and I'm disgusted. But I, you know, I have to go. But I'm
2: there, and I know the people who are doing it, who invited me to go with them.
3: Yeah, I mean, look,
1: like I think only Madison Cawthorn knows why he said what he said, but I do think that that kind of comment plays into these stereotypes that people have, or you know, people are disinclined to like the quote-unquote establishment, and so when you hear something about members of Congress who are by definition the establishment, even if you're Marjorie Taylor Green, you have a position of power, so you are in a sense establishment. It kind of does go into that vein of people thinking politicians in Washington specifically are entitled and corrupt and things like that.
0: Well, and also, I mean, the reason we were talking about House of Cards last week is because there was a poll suggesting that a lot of people think that House of Cards reflects reality. So I think also he's perhaps responding to what appears to be this real perception that, you know, Washington is really dirty and it is really corrupt and there are maybe orgies and like, sure, maybe people are doing coke in the house office building or, you know, whatever. And like, he's there and he's seeing it and he's shocked by it, but he's like maintaining his... Purity as someone who, you know, sort of came in with this fresh faced idealism and just, you know, well, I was going to say wants to get things done, but this is Madison Cawthorn who does not get things done. (laughs) But um, he's explicitly said he's not interested. Right, right, exactly right. So he's there to do insert TBD. But I think for us, and we talked about this again last week, like I live in DC. I know that DC is a pretty boring place, but that's not the perception of Washington or politics. And so I think that's part of what he's responding to, that people think that this is what politics is like.
2: Okay, so given that this is, for Cheney, it was impeaching the Republican president, voting to impeach the Republican president. For Cawthorn, it is seemingly implicating his colleagues in orgies and cocaine use. I should say he walked the statement back a little bit, and McCarthy said that, Cawthorne had told him that he exaggerated. But how vulnerable is Cawthorne in his Republican primary in North Carolina's 11th?
3: I mean, I would say it's he's maybe more vulnerable than some of the members who we might talk about with him, so like a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert, even a Matt Gates. I mean, maybe he's he's maybe more vulnerable than any of them. But I actually don't think it's so much about the comments that he made. I think it's more about some of what's been going on at home for him politically. And this gets to the fact that when North Carolina, the Republican-controlled legislature initially passed a new congressional map, it created – now, Cawthorn represents currently the westernmost district in the state, takes in Asheville and sort of Appalachia, the western Asheville, baby. (laughs) Yeah, Asheville's great. There was a district that was created that basically sat between Charlotte and that district – And it was going to be a more conservative, more right-leaning district, sort of in the exurbs of Charlotte, suburbs and exurbs of Charlotte. And Cawthorn announced that he was going to run there, even though he represented like a 10th of that area uh, currently. But in the end, because of ongoing litigation and eventually a court-drawn map, he's now running in essentially the same district that he currently represents instead of that other district. So I think he's potentially sort of lost connections at home, irritated people by announcing he was going to run in this different district, which no longer exists now. And now he's like, oh, I guess I'll be running in the one I currently represent. And I just think it's maybe uh, indicative of how he's handled keeping things good on the home front, you might say. And we know that politically for representatives, you want to keep your constituents somewhat happy. Obviously, partisanship matters a great deal. So in a Republican-leaning district, they're more likely to be really happy with a Republican representative like Madison Cawthorn. But at the end of the day, if you're not like keeping those relationships in good health, if you're not spending some time in the district, you can get yourself into trouble. And I think that's sort of what I think is actually Cawthorn's biggest problem. And by making that move to initially run in a different district, someone decided, well, there's an open district I'm going to run instead. And, and that was the state senator, Chuck Edwards, who... Tom Tillis the senator from North Carolina is now endorsed and that others have gotten behind and he stayed in the race when Cawthorn jumped back into his current seat. So the two of them are now I think the most notable candidates running there. But basically none of this had to happen if Cawthorn had just run in the seat from the from the get go. Like Edwards never jumps in if Cawthorn doesn't try to run in this other seat first. And so I think it's that sort of situation that's gotten Cawthorn in maybe the most trouble more than even these comments.
1: I will say though, you know, to Jeffrey's point, I still don't think you would say, you know, he's maybe in more danger than your average entrenched incumbent, but I don't think he's in any particular danger of losing. So, uh, one of Edwards's internal polls found Cawthorn at fifty-two percent and Edwards at just twenty percent, and you have to bear in mind that, of course, an internal poll is something that theoretically. Reflects the best case scenario for you. Um, so to release an internal poll that shows you down thirty points is, I think, particularly damning. And when was this? Um, that's a good question. This was in February, February tenth to thirteenth. But to Jeffrey's point, also, you know, I'm not sure that these comments are necessarily going to be a big ding against him with with local voters. You know, if anything, based on our conversation before, they might you know agree with them and, and think, oh yeah, DC is corrupt. In addition, you know, North Carolina has a very low threshold for a runoff state. So in many states, if you don't get a majority of the primary vote, you move on to a runoff. And maybe in a head-to-head, you could argue that because he's only at 52% in that poll, you know it could be competitive. But the issue is that in North Carolina, the runoff threshold is actually just 30%. So as long as Madison Cawthorn gets 31% of the vote, which of course would be really bad for an incumbent, but even if he gets 31% and nobody else gets higher, he still wins. So I think I, you know, the smart money is on him returning to Congress next year.
2: So maybe part of how we can tease out if Madison Cawthorn's troubles have to do with redistricting and, and jumping around, maybe more than some of the firebrand things he said, is comparing him to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, for example. Are those Republicans facing primary challenges at home? ones that are at least as credible as Cawthorns? I'd say
1: that Cawthorns opponent right now, Chuck Edwards, is probably the most credible challenger in this kind of constellation. Marjorie Taylor Greene does have, you know, I think one challenger of note, Jennifer Strahan, who's a businesswoman, but she's in kind of a similar situation where, you know, she's well behind. She released an internal poll that showed her trailing by 30 points as well. Or actually, no, I should say that was a poll by Georgia political observers who are interested in a conservative alternative to Marjorie Taylor Greene It was not technically a campaign poll. But yeah, so Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, is a fundraising machine. She starts off with the lead, so I'm betting on her again to win her primary. Paul Gosar and Matt Gates do not currently have primary challengers, at least not notable ones. And then finally, Lauren Boebert does have a state senator running against her, Don Corum. We haven't seen fundraising numbers for him, but he's kind of a, a moderate. He's got his state senator, so he's not certainly not a nobody. But I would venture to guess that a Republican primary electorate would be more of the red meat throwing type that Bobert represents rather than somebody who, like Coram, has talked about how he likes to work together with Democrats to achieve results, which is kind of a quaint idea in primaries these days.
2: Wrapping up here, thinking about, it seems like Kevin McCarthy has come out against him, high profile North Carolina senator has come out against Cawthorn. How much control ultimately does party leadership have over things like this? Who's welcome in the party? And who's not? And of course, this is something that Democrats have dealt with at times as well, where the establishment leadership wants a fringe candidate or a more to the left candidate out, but seemingly can't necessarily convince voters like how much power does the party or leadership ultimately have here?
1: I think they have some power, perhaps more than they are typically giving credit for, especially in kind of the era of Trump and everybody being like, oh, Trump's endorsement matters a lot. And, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about how I think if Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and everybody kind of were to lean on a different candidate and, you know, support that versus a Trump endorsed candidate, that candidate might do better than everybody would assume. But I do think that clearly voters make up their own minds. Trump himself is a big deal. I think you kind of have to put him into a different category than the traditional Republican establishment. I think by all rights, Trump is still a fan of Madison Cawthorn's, even though ironically, he is one of the only Republicans who he endorsed against, but who still won a primary last time around. So I think if if Trump endorses Cawthorn, but you have Tom Tillis and these other people endorsing his opponent, I think I would go with Trump in that case. If Trump were to endorse against Cawthorn for some reason, that could certainly get interesting. I think that would change the race. But yeah, I think it's this combination of one third Trump, one third every other Republican officeholder. Um, which means that individual people like Tom Tillis probably don't have that much sway themselves. Um, But if the entire rest of the D.C. establishment got against Cawthorn, that might be notable. Um, And then kind of one third voters just making up their own minds.
2: All right. Well, of course, as we've discussed in both cases of Liz Cheney and Madison Cawthorn, there's a lot to follow between now and primary election day, which we will do. And we will be tracking all of their primaries as well. But for now, thank you, Amelia, Jeff, and Nathaniel. Thanks,
1: Galen. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen.
2: My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director and Emily Vinesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.